you're new with us, so glad you're here. If you're here in the building or you're online, my name is Jordan Johnson. I have the joy of being one of our elders here, PVC also our lead pastor. So glad that you're here. A brief prayer, and then we're going to jump in. Father, from the depths of our heart, we ask that you would glorify yourself this morning through the study the interpretation, the application of your word. What we know not, would you give us? What we are not, would you make us? Through the study of Nehemiah, Lord, I pray that our eyes would be open to the beauty the grandeur of who you are, that we would be overwhelmed over these next several months at all that you are, all that you have done through the life, death, resurrection, ascension of our Lord Jesus. How I thank you for the preservation of your word, God, that we could have a copy in front of us right now. Much blood has been shed for us to be able to have a copy personally of your word, so we don't neglect that. We recognize there are believers all over the world right now who do not have freedom that we have to do what we're doing right now, and so we pray, God, that you would increase their faith and give them the grace, God, to keep enduring, waiting patiently for your vindication when that time is. I ask now, God, by your Spirit, that you would open the word up to us, that we would get a really firm grasp today on what Nehemiah is, who he is, and, and what is the part, God, that you brought him to and the, the role he played in salvific history. To the glory of your name, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Nehemiah chapter 1 today, verses 1 to 3. The title of our sermon is, The Person, The Place, and the problem, the person, the place, and the problem. If you have an outline there in front of you, I hope you got one on the way in, because we're going to walk through that and want you to see some really important points and some things along the way. So the Bible begins as a story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then the Bible ends with an amazing conclusion that really is the end of the beginning. And when you think about the Bible, don't think about it as basic instructions before leaving earth. Don't think about it as your self-help manual, like in the glove box of your car, that if you just read, you could really figure out how to make life work. Don't think about the Bible that way. It's a very cultural way to think about the Bible. It's not the biblical or the best way to think about the Bible. The Bible, at, at just with no fluff, the Bible is one grand story of God saving sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the hero of the Bible. You're not the hero. I'm not the hero. David and Goliath was not about you and your mountains or your giants you're facing. It was about a story and pointing to when Jesus, the great God 
of the ages would come and slay the enemy of sin and death, and Goliath was a picture of all that that is. And so, friends, the Bible is a grand story of God saving sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And the Bible has a human author, about 40 of them, and the Bible has a divine author, the Holy Spirit. And, and he's weaving from Genesis to Revelation, this grand story of bringing people into the family of God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but I really enjoy a great story. Anybody else enjoy a great story? I really enjoy a great story. And part of the reason that we love stories is because we're made in the image of God. God is the great storyteller in human history. See, stories have the ability to draw us in, do they not? They have the ability to grip our hearts. See, it is one thing for you to read in the Bible, hear in the Bible, do not commit adultery. It's one thing to hear that. You can understand that. I, sh I should not commit adultery. But to read the story of David and Bathsheba and the way in which he was supposed to be fighting in a, in a battle and he's laid up in bed and he looks out of his window and sees someone not named his wife, and he says, I want her, and he goes and has things arranged to get her, and they commit adultery, and then David arranges a whole slew of events to cover up his own sin. That story should shake you to the core. Now, you understand you shouldn't commit adultery, but when you actually see it played out and you see a story about it, it, it draws you in. And when you think about the book of Nehemiah, you're looking at a story within the story of the overarching theme of God saving a people for Himself. And so when you think forest, you think 66 books. We're going to zoom into the trees for the next several months in the book of Nehemiah, but we're never going to get away from this overarching theme of God saving a people for Himself through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But when you read the book of Nehemiah, See, I could, tell you, I could tell you God wants you to have a great vision of who He is, God wants you to love the Word of God, and God wants you to love the people of God. I could tell you those things. I could preach that and say, you should do these things. And if you have the Spirit of God in you, then you would say, amen. But when you read the book of Nehemiah, you're actually going to see what that looks like in the life of a person. Because one of my prayers is, coming out of this series, probably in December sometime, is that you would have a grander vision of who God is. God is going to get bigger in your mind. He's going to get bigger so that the challenges you face at work and, and in marriage and in finance, you'll just get your eyes off of those struggles and you'll get your eyes up to the bigness of God and He will overwhelm you that He's got this. Second of all, my prayer is, is that you're going to have a greater vision, a greater love and affection for the Word of God. You're going to see Nehemiah love the Word of God. He loved it, and he wanted the people of God to believe it, to live it, to love it, and to submit to it. My prayer for you and for me is that we would leave this series having a greater love and affection for the Word of God. Third of all, you're going to see in Nehemiah, he loved God's people. Oh, he had a heart for the people of God. And I pray that your love meter 
If, it's, if, 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 it's, if this is like in the middle right here, and you're like, yeah, I kind of love God's people, I'm praying God the Holy Spirit is going to go vroom, and move that meter way over that you're going to say, oh, they get on my nerves sometimes, but I love the people of God. I love my brothers and my sisters in Christ. So again, I could tell you, do those things, but it's going to be more powerful. It's going to be very illuminating for you to see it lived out in the life of a man. And what you see in Nehemiah is a normal dude, all right? Just a normal guy who does those things. And Ezra, if you look in your Bible, the book before Nehemiah, Ezra, you could think about Ezra as the prequel, the prequel to Nehemiah. In fact, in Hebrew, if you had a Hebrew Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah are one book. It's Ezra and Nehemiah. They're one book because it's really one story. When they began to get the Bible and categorize it into books, they broke it up. But in the Hebrew Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah is one story. And both books go together and are arranged similarly. So Ezra is about God's people going back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. The first six chapters of the book of Ezra is Ezra leading a brigade of people back into the holy city of Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple so that God's people who had been exiled could come together as a family again, could come together and worship their God corporately. And then chapter 7 of Ezra to the end of the book, chapter 10, is about the spiritual restoration of the hearts of God's people. Ezra helps turn the hearts of God's people back to their God. The temple's rebuilt now, they have a place to worship, and Ezra leads them back into it. Nehemiah, similarly, the first six chapters are about a physical structure. Nehemiah is going to be used by God to lead a parade of people to rebuild, not the temple, it's already been built through Ezra, but the walls that protect Jerusalem and the people of God and the city of God. The last half of Nehemiah, chapter 7 to the chapter 13, is about the spiritual restoration of the people of God. So Ezra starts, we got to rebuild the temple. We need somewhere to worship. Now we got to get the hearts of the people where they need to be so they can see their God and worship Him. Nehemiah, it's about rebuilding the walls of the city to protect the people of God. And then in chapter 8, there's going to be a big turn and the greatest chapter, in my opinion, is chapter 8 of Nehemiah, because Nehemiah is going to read the Word of God, and the people are going to weep and cry, because they realize we are in a mess. And the reason we're in a mess is because we forsook our God, and they weep, and they come back to God. And then Nehemiah ends on a bit of a bummer, because they're looking for their Messiah. They're looking for their Messiah. Now, why are these walls so important, these walls? Why are the walls of Jerusalem so important that Nehemiah would have a passionate pursuit from God to go and lead a brigade to build those walls back? And why, why are the walls important? Well, the walls are important because from the people of God, someone in particular is coming, namely Jesus Messiah, namely the Messiah. And so, Nehemiah is at the very end of Old Testament history. So, if you have your Bible, flip over to the table of contents with me. Look at the table of contents for just a moment. So, you always need to bring your Bible to church. Hello. 
table of contents. And I want you to see the first 16 books in the Old Testament, Genesis to Nehemiah. Nehemiah is the 16th book. There's 39 books, Old Testament, 27 books, New Testament. And the 16th book there, Nehemiah, when you look at that, you don't think in your mind, Nehemiah is the end of Old Testament history. But it really is. The book of Nehemiah, when Nehemiah is finished, the curtain closes. And now we're ready for Messiah to come on the scene. So that's why if you have a chronological study Bible that puts the the books of the Bible in the order in which they came about, you will see Nehemiah at the end. So I just, I wanted you to see that, that Nehemiah is at the end of Old Testament history. And so God is interested in these walls because of these people. And God has to protect these people. He doesn't have to, but He chose to establish a people named Israel And he has to keep those folks protected so that ethnically the Jews would not be completely annihilated from the earth so that one day Jesus could be born a Jew, he could be the greater temple, he could be the greater tabernacle, he could come and be the Savior of the entire world. You see, it's because God used Nehemiah to rebuild these walls that Jesus is going to grow up Jewish that Jesus is going to be the fulfillment of the law that Ezra introduced to the people in his book, Ezra. Jesus is going to be the truer and better sacrifice, the truer and better temple. And all of this is going to conclude, by the way, in the book of Revelation, new heaven, new earth. So in the grand scheme of things, watch this now, the walls of Jerusalem were not so much about keeping people out. These walls were to protect the people so that one day Jesus could be born, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and begin to offer to all peoples of the world, if you'll put your faith in me, you can be part of the kingdom of God, even if you're not a Jew. And so this is ethnically important to preserve the line of the Jewish people because the Jews are outnumbered greatly in world history. And so God protects them, and He uses these walls to put around them. So it's in Jerusalem that Jesus will be killed. It's in Jerusalem that Jesus will be resurrected. It's in Jerusalem that He will commission the disciples, take my gospel to the ends of the earth. So we will frame our study of Nehemiah through that narrative of Scripture and we'll, we'll keep the big picture in place as we zoom in on the weeds. Now, if you drop down to verse 11 of Nehemiah chapter 1, I want you to see this is Nehemiah's passionate pursuit. He says, O Lord, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear in your name. So notice Nehemiah, he wants to do something great for the glory of the name of God. Now, when you think about the name of God, this is what you should be thinking. Everything that makes God God is his name. Everything that makes God God is his name. So when he wants to do something for the glory of the name of God, he wants to do something for the glory of all that God is. Is. So he says that we want to fear your name. And then draw, look, look at chapter 2, verse 12. Because Nehemiah is inspecting these walls that have been broken down. 
Notice, I arose in the night, I and I had a few with me, and I told no one, notice, what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. Notice God is putting something on the man's heart. Chapter 6, verse 3, notice there, chapter 6, verse 3, Nehemiah begins to get opposition. How many of you know when you begin to do a great work for God, everybody's not excited about it? Some people are going to oppose you. Even people that say they love God will begin to oppose you. And in this case, it's the heathen that's opposing him, but that's, that's normal. Notice 3 of chapter 6. And I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work. I, I can't come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Now, hence the name, Passionate Pursuit, is the subtitle of this study. And the reason it's passionate pursuit is Nehemiah had a passionate pursuit on his heart to do something great for God, to play his part in the story that God was writing in cosmic history and in his own history. And I pray that as we study this book, that the Spirit of God will inspire in you a passionate pursuit. Watch this now to do something great for the name and fame of God. I want you to think about your life right now. Are you doing anything that you would just simply say, I'm doing this for the name and the fame of God? You might look at the lostness in the world. You may look at racial injustice. You may look at people that don't have clean water. You may look at the rate of poverty in Cleveland. Look at the amount of fatherless homes in the city of Parma. You may look at something in the life of our church, and God gives you a passionate pursuit to not just stand there and let that happen but by God's grace to go get in the middle of it and get your hands dirty and say, I'm not okay. I'm not okay with that. And I can't change the world, and I, and I, and I can only do so much, but I'm going to play my part in that to help push that back so that God's name and his fame and his reputation would be looked upon in great fear. That's Nehemiah. Now, before we jump into verse 1, set a bit of a historical context about a thousand years after God comes to Abram, Genesis 12, Abraham means father of many nations. Abram means father. Abraham, the ham on the back, that means father of many nations. And so God is going to take this man, Abram, and through Abram, he's going to be Abraham, father of many nations. If you grew up in church, we sang that song, Father Abraham and many sons. I am one of them, so are you, so let's just praise the Lord. That song is, is, is the fact that Abraham is the father. He's our father. Abraham is our father in a spiritual sense because it was whom God used to begin his people. About a thousand years after um, God comes to Abram, the monarchy is established. The people of God are established. And the first king of this monarchy, Israel, is Saul. The people of Israel looked at the other nations, and they said, we want a king. We want to be like all the other nations. God took offense at that because Israel was a theocracy. 
They weren't supposed to be a democracy or uh, uh, some other form of human government. They were a theocracy, theo God. They were supposed to have God as their king, and they were going to function under His reign. But they were like, they looked around and said, we want to be like the other nations. And so God gave them Saul. Saul was the people's king, and he acted ignorant, and the nation went into a mess under King Saul to his own physical demise as he falls on the sword. The second king, David, this is the golden years of Israel's history. King Under King David, God uses this man after his own heart. He had blunders along the way. He, he committed adultery. We already noted that. He had some blunders personally along the way. But at the end of the day, he was a man whom was heart bled and weeped for the things of God. And so, God used him powerfully. And then there's Solomon, King Solomon. Solomon grew in great prosperity, but the problem with his prosperity, he began to compromise spiritually, and he, he gave his heart to idolatry and drove the nation into the ground. And because of that, the kingdom, the monarchy, split into two. Notice this picture on the screen. Israel, you have Israel, the green is the northern kingdom, the south the burnt orange, UT, hello, just kidding. In the south is the southern kingdom, and they are split because of the blunder of Solomon. Well, what happens as this is taking place is the Babylonians are the ruling power of the day. And the Babylonians are under a king named Nebuchadnezzar. And this is what we read in First Chronicles or Second Chronicles, verse 36, 19. Notice, and they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. Now, before this takes place, that Israel in the north, and you have Judah in the south, Israel is wiped out by the first ruling power of the day, which is the Assyrians. The Assyrians sack them, they wipe out the northern kingdom. So now all that's left is the southern kingdom, and the southern kingdom existed for a couple of hundred years until this ruling power under Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians, come in and completely wipe out the southern kingdom. And here in 19, these are the walls that Nehemiah is going to be used by God to rebuild. These are those walls that these Babylonians came in and destroyed. Well, when this happened, the destroying of the southern kingdom, some of the people got out. Some of them got out, some of them escaped, but they became slaves of this wicked king named Nebuchadnezzar. And for the next 70 years, the Babylonians are ruling the modern world. They are the ruling power of the day. The northern tribe is gone, the southern tribe is gone, and the people of Israel are scattered all over the world, and they have no identity, they have no city, they are a people on the run. And for the next 70 years, this happens, and then 792, the Babylonians are overtaken by the next ruling power named the Persians. And the Persians now are ruling the world. And God in His sovereign grace, watch this now, God in His sovereign grace 
uses a pagan Persian king named Cyrus to allow a group of Israelites who got together and said, we want to go and restore Jerusalem back to its prominence. It, it had been laying in ruins since this took place. 140 years, 130 years it laid in ruins like this. This is where Ezra comes in. And this is where under God's leadership, Ezra helps build the temple back. And now the people of God who have joined back together now have a place to worship. So remember, Ezra and Nehemiah are one story. And so there's three waves of exiles that return. So these exiles are all over. The temple is being rebuilt. That's the first wave of exiles that come back. The second wave is in Ezra 7 when they realize, oh, there's a temple back in Jerusalem. we got to get there. So you have the first wave who rebuilt the temple. You have the second wave who said, let's get back to Jerusalem. I, I heard about that from my grandma, my grandpa, my cousins, and they used to worship God there, and, and it's getting restored, and they all ran back. So that's the second wave. The third wave is Nehemiah's wave. Nehemiah's wave of exiles are going to come back and be used by God now to rebuild the outer walls that protect the temple and protect the people of God so that God could preserve those people so that Messiah could be born. And Nehemiah comes, really are his journal entries, one way to think about the book of Nehemiah, his journal entries, he's writing down what he saw and what he experienced and how God used him as he did this great work for God. So notice, first of all, the person in your notes. This is what we pick up in chapter 1, the person. The words of Nehemiah. Now, we don't know a lot about Nehemiah. We don't know much about the person, Nehemiah. But Nehemiah is most likely a single dude. He's probably a single guy, probably not married. And the name Nehemiah, you should note this, the name Nehemiah means the Lord comforts, the Lord comforts. God is going to use Nehemiah to bring comfort to His people. He's going to use it. I'm, going to pray, I'm praying that God's going to use this book to bring comfort in your life and in my life and in our life. But the Lord comforts. It's worth noting as well that Nehemiah is not a paid religious official. He's not a priest. He's not a prophet. He's not clergy. He's just a guy. But he's not just a guy. The la at the end of chapter 1, he's a cupbearer. Now, this is a very interesting job as a cupbearer, especially if you're a risk taker. Nehemiah would essentially taste the wine and the food before the king put it in his mouth. And if he didn't drop dead, then the king would drink that wine and drink that food. It's a very common way to kill kings, by the way. Poison their drink, poison their food. They eat it, it gets in their belly, it kills them, they die, we're done with that problem. So, the first thing a king would want is a Nehemiah. I need someone to taste that or drink that before it goes in my mouth. Because there's a chance all these other nations want to kill me. And so, Nehemiah is a cup bearer. That's what it means, a cup bearer. He's a, he's a taster. And you would say to him, Nehemiah, eat up, drink up, and don't drop dead. That's your job. Eat up, drink up, and don't drop dead. And if you die, I'm not eating that. And we're going to get a, need to get another Nehemiah. So, depending upon the king that you serve, you would go through a lot of cupbearers. Because some people were really after that king. And so, 
some jobs were more risky cup-bearing for than others. But either way, if you're a risk-taker, you'd like this job because when you eat, you, you could die. But I don't want you to think about Nehemiah as a peon taster. That's a cup-bearer, according to history and what we know, is that a cup-bearer in many ways was the second in power. So think Joseph. Joseph wasn't a cup-bearer, Genesis 37 to the end of Genesis. He wasn't a cupbearer, but he was, he was second in command. And in many ways, this was a big deal. It was a big deal. It was a, obviously a well-paying job. Your insurance was covered. You had good retirement. Um, it, 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 your 401k was going to get pretty fat. It was a good job, but you could be killed any day. That's Nehemiah's job. So I don't want you to think this is just a butler. He's not just a butler. He's got a big position. Big position. And here's the thing about him, too. We don't even know how he got in the position. We don't know how this happened. We don't know how Nehemiah all of a sudden got here. But somehow, in God's providence, he's sitting here as a cupbearer to the king. Notice the son of Hakaliah. What a great name, Hakaliah. Wouldn't you like to have a child named Hakaliah and they're acting kiddish? You just say, Hakaliah! Hakaliah. You say, Jordan, who in the world is Hakaliah? I have no idea. <laughs> and, I, and I can tell you, I've done a lot of reading this week, trying to trace who in the world this man is. I don't know. I don't know who he is. Furthermore, Nehemiah is not mentioned in the New Testament. You're not going to see his name there. What we have, again, is basically Nehemiah's journal entries as God is using him along the way. So we don't know much about him. And, and the reason I bring this up I hope that's encouraging to you because it doesn't matter your background, okay? It doesn't matter your past. I mean, if you think that you need a squeaky clean background or you need a spiritually rich pedigree for God to use you, you would be wrong, my friend. God has Nehemiah in the perfect position to make a difference for the kingdom of God. Nehemiah is just like Esther. Esther essentially won a beauty pageant, right? She won a beauty pageant, and she goes just like, ask the king for something. And by the way, just for Bible history, between wave two and wave three, the end of Ezra and the beginning of Nehemiah, that's the story of Esther. Esther's fit in right there. You know, she's with that Persian king. It's right there in the middle of that. But Nehemiah, just like Esther, you know that famous line, she was put in for such a time as this. This is Nehemiah's story too. God has put these two people that we don't know a whole lot about initially, and he just uses them to make a huge difference for the kingdom of God. Friends, don't forget this. Don't forget this. God providentially places people in strategic places so that his cosmic plan can be worked out. This is what our God does. This is what our God does. He puts people in places, he puts something on their heart, and, a, and his cosmic plan is unfolding. It's beautiful. So that's the, the person. And I want you to notice the place, the place. Now, it happened, verse 1b, in the month of Kislev. So we're in the winter, okay? This is November, this is December, this is in the, the, the winter time. In the 20th year, write in your Bible, 445 B.C., 445 B.C., he says, I was in Susa. That's the winter palace of the king. So, you know, you have snowbirds, right, that 
They have a home. They go down to Florida to live in because they don't like the cold. Well, kings had palaces where they would go when certain weather patterns weren't what they like, they would go to certain places. That's what he does. This is his winter palace in Susa. Notice the citadel that Hanani, one of my brothers. Now, most likely, this is an actual brother, not just a Jewish kinsman. So he's not just saying some brother somewhere. He's saying most likely one of his, like, blood brothers. One of his blood brothers had, had survived the exile came with certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. So he wants to know, what is the condition of the people of God? Now think about this. Nehemiah's place is the palace. That's where he's at. His place is the palace. He's got a nice job. Outside of being a little risky, the man is an opulence in a palace. Not just any palace, but the palace of the ruling king of the day. I mean, these people overcame the Assyrians, and nobody overcomes the Assyrians. So the question, if you're a, a clear thinker, Nehemiah, why don't you just coast, man? I mean, why not just chill? Why get yourself involved in this problem? I mean, you got a good retirement, 401ks, 401ks looking good. You probably get tons of vacation days. You get to eat the best food in the world. You get to sleep in the greatest places of the world. You get to shake hands with the elite of many societies. Nehemiah, why don't you just chill out, dude? Why, do, why are you going to get involved in this? You could just sort of float into retirement and have a nice pad to live in, and you don't have to get involved in all of this. Well, this is the heart of our God. He had a passionate pursuit that God put on his heart. And we're going to see it. I'm not going to get into it today, but you're going to see it. You're going to see it's what drove him. This passionate pursuit is what drove Nehemiah to keep going, to keep doing this, not for his glory, but for the fame of God's name. So the person, the place, third of all, the problem. Notice three. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile, remember we talked about that, is in great trouble and shame. So remember, survived the exile under King Nebuchadnezzar and then made it through the Persian king. And then the Persian king said, go back. Ezra happens. The temple's been built. Everything is coming into play. And he says, the people of God are in great trouble and shame. Now, this is what I want you to see about Nehemiah. He could not just sit there and do nothing. He could not just sit there and do nothing. The wall, the city, the people were inextricably connected to the name of God, the reputation of God. And it bothered Nehemiah. It bothered him that people thought things about God that are not true. It bothered him. And he said, I'm not going to let these people think this is how our God is. I'm going to go and be used by him and restore these walls. The wall of Jerusalem, he said, is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. Remember 2 Chronicles we looked at? So this is how the story begins. Nehemiah, God providentially put him in an influential position. These walls have been down for 141 years, 141, 141 years. These walls have been down since 2 Chronicles took place. 
He's in the palace of the king in opulence. He's been given this report, and he is like not okay with that state. And the question is, what is he going to do? What's Nehemiah going to do about this now that he knows all this? Well, let me tell you something, friends. I love what he does. I love what he does. We'll pick up here next week, but what he's going to do is he's going to pray. He's going to pray. The very first thing Nehemiah does, he does not complain. He does not freak out. He does not self-medicate. He doesn't even put his overalls on and get to work. The first thing he does is pray. Prayer is essential for accomplishing a great work for the glory of God. Prayer is not all there is to do. Nehemiah is going to do a lot. He's going to do a whole lot throughout this book. But without prayer, everything you do for God is empty. Do you know Do you know how easy it is to do things for God? And they actually be right things, but they're empty. It's hollow. It's not worship. It's not joyful. It's just dutiful. When God wants it to be a delight. There are seasons of duty, and duty will fight through to delight. I'm not saying that every day is just a wonderful day. But at the end of the day... You can do a lot, remember this, remember this, you can do a lot after you've prayed, but you can't do anything until you've prayed. You can do a lot after you pray, but you can do nothing, or you shouldn't do nothing until after you pray. And what you're going to see is one of the great prayers in the Bible next week. One of the great prayers in the Bible is Nehemiah's prayer. As he looks at this mountain of a project, he looks at all that is in front of him, and he says, and, I, and he realizes, I can't do this alone. I need God. I need his wisdom. I need his guidance. And he's going to cry out in adoration and confession. He's going to end with supplication. It is one of the beautiful, most beautiful prayers in the Bible, and we're going to break it down next week. But the main thing I want you to see is before you can do the work God's called you to do, you better pray. And by the way, he prays, as we'll see, for four months before he does this. Four months. So some of us say, let me pray about that, like, just a few moments, and then, yes, I'll do it. Where he prays for four months. And by the way, sometimes you say yes to things, and God has you ready to say yes. I'm not saying that. But I'm just simply saying, when God puts his great work on your heart, you've got to pray. So my prayer for us, speaking of prayer, I just want you to write these four things down, and we're going to close out here. Prayer points for Nehemiah. I want you to just join in with me. Number one, that we would have a renewed vision of the greatness of God. Would you pray that with me? A renewed vision of the greatness of God. Second of all, greater affection for the Scripture. Renewed vision of the greatness of God. Greater affection for the Scripture. Third of all, deeper love for God's people. Fourth of all, inspire a, here's the blanks, passionate pursuit in and through you. You know, something I'm going to do throughout this series is I'm going to bring you stories from church history and stories from people that looked at certain circumstances and said they were not okay with it and how they said, I'll get in the game, I'll get in the arena, I'll get in the fight, and how God used their obedience to do massive things for the glory of God. I'm going to share those stories with you in in the sermons. Different people like Lottie Moon and other Elizabeth Elliot, other people that just said, I'm not okay with people going to hell over there. 
I'm, I'm getting on a plane. I'm, I'm getting on a boat. I'm going over there. I'm going to share the God. I'm going to do my part. That's a passionate pursuit, and that's what's going on. I'm praying that for you, brother. I'm praying that for you, sister. I'm praying that for us, that we would get a grand renewal of God wants to do something great through us individually. He wants to do something great for us as a church. And as we look at Parma, we look at our surrounding area, there's a lot of things that we should not be okay with. Darkness. And we got to ask God, what's our part? To get in the middle of that, rather than sit back maybe in opulence, but go get involved in it. What is that? We're going to see. God's going to show us. So let's pray together, and let's ask God, friends. Let's ask Him, first of all, for a renewed vision of the greatness of who He is. Would you just ask Him that there where you're at right now? Would you just say, God, renew my vision to the bigness and the greatness of who you are? Ask God to renew the vision of corporately here at Pleasant Valley Church that we would see God as the big, amazing God that He is. Then would you pray greater affection for the Scripture? Would you ask God to restore the joy of of reading your Bible and spending time with God in Scripture, in prayer, Bible open, on your knees, tear-stained Bible, begging, pleading with God to restore the joy of your time with Him in His Word. Would you pray that God would restore the joy in our church to hear the Word of God, to view it that way? Third of all, would you pray for a deeper love for God's people? Would you ask God to raise awareness in your heart Maybe towards certain individuals that you like, but you, you or I'm sorry, you, you, you don't love them as you ought. Would you ask God for, would you lay them on the altar before God? And God, would you increase my, my love for you, love for your people, love for your word? And finally, would you take time this week now, but take time to say, God, what is the passionate pursuit of my life? You just ask God right now, so God, would you begin to birth things on my heart? Would you pray for our church that God would birth things on our heart, how to reach Parma and Middleburg and Parma Heights and Strongsville and Berea and North Royalton and Valley View, and we're, we're spread out in a number of different cities here at PVC, and yet God has placed you there for such a time as this. What is that? Nehemiah knew his role. Do you know yours? Oh God, we come to you this morning thanking you once again for the truth of your word. We thank you, God, for using this rich, rich, rich book, this rich story within the overall story of you, God, saving sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, God, we do pray that you would increase and restore the joy of our salvation. God, some of our people right now, they're tired. They're physically tired. They've got a lot going on, a lot of plates spinning. And I just pray, God, that you would remind them of how important it is that 
The busier they get, the more stuff they have going on, the more time they need to spend in prayer, the more time they need to spend in God's Word. And Lord, we, we confess to You that often when we get busy is when we begin to neglect the things that should be most precious to us, namely our communion with You, our devotion with You, our time in Your Word, our, our time in prayer, fasting, memorizing Scripture. Lord, there's no greater pursuit than for our lives to glorify You. So, would You show us throughout this series how to do that, how to do it better individually, how to do it as a church? I pray, God, as we start our connect group soon and we start getting together in these groups and coming out of these sermons, talking and thinking and praying through questions of how to apply these things, God, would You prepare leaders, prepare folks who've signed up as we have sign-ups going out very soon. Lord, would you continue to stoke the fire of excitement to get in connection with, with you, with a group of people, to the glory of your name. And God, we do pray for someone among us who is not a believer, doesn't understand the gospel. God, would you help us help them this day understand what it is to know you, love you, fear you, worship you, and be your child. We ask now, Lord, that you, Jesus, would be our sure and steady anchor for the week ahead. We ask it in Jesus' name. As we stand to our feet, can we sing?